in Capital City. Let's stand and worship our Savior this morning. Sing, I was buried. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my turn till I met.
today. We'd like to welcome you. We also would like to welcome all of you that are online. Thank you. You are our extended family, and we hope that this extended family grows. Let's give them a hand, Captain. Let them know we're glad you're with us today. God bless you. Thank you for taking time with us at Capital City today. I would like to mention that we do have a special guest speaker today. His name is David Harris. Can you see him over there? David, raise your hand. And I know it's kind of dark. I've known David since he was just a little guy. He grew up, he calls himself a Nipshin brat, uh, which is our Nipshin camp down south. But he has grown up and God has blessed his ministry all over the world. He went from Ohio and went out to Bayside Christian Church in San Francisco. He's worked with Lincoln Brewster. He's done Thrive Conferences all over the country. We really, it's an honor to have David with us. Dr. David, give him one more time. Just a hand time. We appreciate you. As always on the third song, and I love this part of our church family and our church life, if you have a need, pastors and elders will be up here to pray, and we're just going to pray with you. And I am believing, you're going to hear a lot of this this week, or this month. Will you say this with me one time? If God be for us, who can be against us? Say it with me. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now say it like you mean it. If God be for us, who can be against us? One more time, but if God be for me. If God be for me, who can be against me? Amen? Amen. Let's continue worship. Just can't keep it moving 
Sponsoring a barbecue and hay ride fundraiser on October 2nd at 4 p.m. Come and join us for a great evening here on the church campus. Donations are appreciated. Please stop by and sign up today so we have an accurate count. Thank you. Join us next Sunday, October 3rd, for First Sunday. We will have pumpkin treats and the Great Pumpkin Hunt for grades pre-K through 5th. Bring a friend to service and enjoy a great day of fellowship. We hope to see you there. Thank you for supporting the ministries of Cap City Church. You can give online at capcitychurch.live. You can give through Cash App at Capital City Church. And you can give by writing a check or giving cash. Our ushers will be receiving the offering at the end of service. Please welcome our guest speaker, Dr. David Harris, as he brings us the message. Good morning, Capital City. How are you today? Uh, Y'all are too gracious. My name's David. Uh, thank you for letting me be here. We have, this has been scheduled since the end of April. And over the past few months, I have become a fan and a student of Capital City Church and the amazing things that God has been doing through you, the amazing things that we believe God's about to do through you. And I am honored and humbled to be standing here with you this morning. Are you expecting great things from Jesus today? Fantastic. Well, you're among good company. I was sitting down here and kind of just scanning everything that's going on, and I just happened to notice, like, for instance, this microphone stand over here. It has three legs that it has to stand on, because if it only had two legs, it'd have a hard time keeping that mic up there, wouldn't it? And some of you over here can see this piano. It has three legs. Again, if it only had two legs, you'd have a tough time playing that bad boy, right? Same thing back there, Daniel's uh, guitar stand's got three legs, because it takes those kinds of balancing measures to keep our life intact, to keep us encouraged, to keep things standing firm so that they don't fall. And the Bible teaches us that to have a healthy life, to have a positive life, to have a life that is life-giving, not just to yourself but to others, there are three things that all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus have to build the foundations of our life on. Anybody know what those are? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Now these three remain. Faith, this is church, it's participatory. Try it again. Now these three remain. She's going to pop it up there for me. Faith, hope, and love. And then the Bible goes on to say, the greatest of these is love. Now I was thinking about that, thinking about how that plays out in all of life. And for the most part, in the Christian church, and in things that represent Jesus, we kind of have the faith thing down. 
You can go to Ohio Christian University and you can study all about the Christian faith. Talk to me. You go into pretty much every church in America and somewhere in their office wall and on their website they have a statement of their faith. And you can go to bookstores that still exist and you can find all kinds of books about faith. Would you agree we kind of have the faith thing down? And I think we also kind of have the love thing down. I mean, what's the first thing that happens in most churches? You come walking indoors and you just hug everybody and love on everybody. You kind of got the love thing down. And we talk about how we are children of God's love. And even culture gets this. Some of you in here are older than me. You're old enough to get this. Even the Beatles said, all you need is love. Huey Lewis in the news saying, that's the power of See, we've got the love thing down both in the church and outside of the church. But the Bible said these three remain, and my concern is nobody's talking about hope these days. Nobody's talking about hope. And yet it takes all of these in equal and varying parts for us to understand and to get them balanced and to get them right and to allow God to speak into our lives and to move into our lives so that we can build our lives on the foundation that he has laid out for us. Man walked into a Presbyterian church one day. Any Presbyterians in here? Good, I can talk freely. Man walked into a Presbyterian church one day. The pastor got up and he started preaching a couple minutes into the message, this, this visitor shouts out, praise the Lord. They'd never heard that before. The pastor regains his composure. He goes on with this message. A few minutes later, the man shouts out again, praise the Lord. Finally, an usher is dispatched to deal with this disruptive guest. He goes up beside him and kneels down and says, hey, buddy, what are you doing? The guy said, I'm praising the Lord. He goes, why are you doing that? He said, because I got the joy of the Lord in me. You didn't get that here. <laughs> a few Presbyterians in here will give me a pass for just a moment. There's an important thing there because we have to understand that joy feeds hope, but anxiety feeds our discouragement. Anybody here ever heard of eHarmony.com? Anybody here ever been on eHarmony.com? <laughs> A few of you aren't sure where I'm going with this, are you? Well, eHarmony.com was started by a psychologist by the name of Neil Clark Warren. And prior to founding eHarmony.com, the most successful, arguably, of the dating websites, Neil Clark Warren was a highly successful psychologist and marriage and family therapist. And Neil Clark Warren just seemed to have a knack for taking marriages and relationships that were broken and disintegrating and filled with discouragement. He just had a way of taking those and making them work. And somebody asked him one day, how is it that you can do that? And he said, well, it's really simple. When I start working with a couple, if they can get just 10% hope, they can save their marriage. He said, because once a couple gets hope, anything becomes possible. See, once a church gets hope, anything becomes possible. Once a marriage gets hope, anything becomes possible. Once a family gets hope, anything becomes possible. Once a sports team gets hope, anything becomes possible. We have any married people in here? How many of you married people ever had a fight? How many of you had that fight this morning? 
Well, sometimes we go through life and we deal with things that are struggles and we deal with things that represent discouragement and pain in the midst of our lives. Would you agree? That's why in your worship notes this morning, I put a list of biblical characters for you to look at. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Every character in the Bible from which we draw inspiration is someone who went through a trying time and then had to depend on God to find fresh hope and then through God they had to find a way to bounce back from the discouragement in life. I'm going to walk through these and then what I want you to do is if you kind of identify with one, put a little check beside it. And some of you may identify with more than one. Then take these home this week Put them on your refrigerator or on your nightstand or on your computer monitor. And maybe sometime over the next couple of weeks or the next month, the one that you resonated with, why don't you take some of your personal devotion time and dig a little deeper into the backstory to see what God did with them. So let's take a look at this list, if you pop it up there for me. Think about this list. Moses had to bounce back from a ministry failure. Some of you have had to do that. Churches have had to do that. It's not God's intention, but it happens. Moses also had to bounce back from a lack of encouragement. Now, I want to show you what lack of encouragement looks like. The Bible teaches us that after Moses began to lead the children of Israel out of bondage and out of Egypt, they got about 15 feet outside of the city gates, and the people started griping and complaining and groaning. One translator says Moses had to put up with the murmuring of all the people. I want to show you what murmuring of all the people looks like. On the count of three, in your normal speaking voice, I want you to say the word murmur five times. One, two, three. Murmur. Do you hear that din of noise that just kind of fills the room? That's what Moses had to put up with for millions of people for 40 years. He had to bounce back. Let's go take a look at the next one. John Mark was rejected by a Christian leader. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Nehemiah had discouragement with circumstances. We're going to look at him in just a few minutes. Um, Peter, Peter's my favorite. Peter had to deal with the discouragement of himself. See, Peter had this knack for opening his mouth and inserting his foot. And he would say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and he would do things that maybe he shouldn't have done as a Christ follower. But I want to teach you this morning what discouragement with self looks like. Do we have any teenagers in here, 19 and under? Can I see your hands? I'm not going to trick you. Okay, I want you guys to all stay seated. If you are age 20 or older, I want you to please stand, if you're able. Now here's how we're going to play this. I'm just going to walk you through some pretty simple life scenarios. When I say one that applies to you, I want you to sit down. You ready? If you were ever sent home from school or a church or activity for misbehavior, sit down. Well, there goes like half the church board. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you sinners one more chance. Stand back up. If you ever made out with another kid at youth camp on a youth retreat or a church youth activity, sit down. A lot of the same people. There's a pattern emerging here. 
If you ever drank alcohol while you were in high school, sit down. I'll finish the message when you're ready. <laughs> if you've ever been in a church service or a camp meeting, and the preacher at the end of his message said, with every head bowed and every eye closed, you peeked, sit down. <laughs> now look, 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 look around. I've done pretty, pretty simple things. All we have left standing are four pathological liars. Would you give them a hand? We have to learn how to deal with the discouraging circumstances that we bring upon ourselves. Let's take another look at the list. So Peter had to deal with discouragement. Jesus had to deal with the discouragement of people. Would you agree? Joseph had to deal with the discouragement that comes from being mistreated in a dysfunctional family. Some of you have had to deal with that. Elijah had to deal with personal criticism. Think about Elijah. Here's Elijah, he goes out, and he's like mocking and making fun of 400 prophets of Baal. God does this great miracle, destroys it all. Elijah wipes out those prophets. 20 minutes later, one woman criticizes him, and he runs out in a cave and hides. And then talk about bouncing back. Lazarus had to bounce back from being dead. <laughs> and all of us have to find a way to bounce back from something in life. Tom Hermes, the former general superintendent of the Churches of Christ and Christian Union, used to tell the story of when he was in school, there was another student there who had come from a stint in the Navy. And Tom said that one day they were asking this guy about life in the Navy, and he said he had been a boxer. And Tom said, well, what kind of boxer were you? And the guy's response has stuck with me all these years. He said, I was the kind of boxer who was either up or getting up. Well, I think that's a pretty good motif for life. Wouldn't you agree? Sometimes life will offer you a knockdown, but a knockdown does not have to be a knockout. We all are bouncing back from something, and when we allow discouragement to get into our lives, it keeps us from living lives filled with hope, and ultimately it keeps us from becoming everything that Jesus Christ would ask us to become. And when you go through scriptures, there's a lot to be said about this, but there's this little verse in Galatians chapter 6 that the Apostle Paul was using to encourage the church there in Galatia. But if you're just reading Galatians devotionally, it's one of those verses that's kind of easy to overlook. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, we would see this verse. Go ahead and pop it up. It says, let us not become weary. Now there in your Bibles or in your message notes, underline the word weary. Other translations would be, say, tired. Some of them would say, discouraged. Let us not become weary in doing good. Because if we have enough money in the bank and perfect children, God will bless everything we do. It's not what Paul says, is it? Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. What's that next word? Talk to me. If. Circle the word if. If what? If we do not give up. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I possess the power of if. There are times when life's going to come at you hard and fast. There are times that you are going to feel worn down, dragged down, worn out, discouraged, even borderline defeated. And God says, if you do not give up, that doesn't mean you're going to go home from church today and all of a sudden that cornfield's going to be gone and there's going to be wheat field out there for you. It means that if you do not give up, if you keep your hope in him, if you keep moving forward, that God's going to work all things together for your good because you love him with your life. 
if you do not give up. Now, I want to teach you some things about why that's so important because I want to talk to you just a moment about the power of discouragement. And there are some things I want you to understand about how discouragement works. Maybe you'll see how it has played out in in your life because all of us get discouragement. In fact, five things I want you to know about discouragement. Number one is this. Discouragement is universal. Everybody gets it. Discouragement is repeating. Did you know you could get discouraged more than once? Discouragement is also contagious. Folks, you can catch a discouraging spirit from other people. If you allow me to be just brutally honest with you this morning, there are certain times, certain periods in your life when there are certain people you should just not hang around because their toxic, discouraging spirit is going to spill over onto you. Even when I'm out speaking, I had the privilege to speak quite a bit across the country. Even when I'm out speaking, sometimes I'll be in a certain church at a certain conference and there are just groups of people I don't even bother looking at while I'm up talking. Here at Cap City, it's this group right over here. No, just kidding. (laughs) Tell you something else about discouragement. Discouragement is circumstantial. There are circumstances that come into our lives, many of which we have no control over because we don't live in a perfect world, do we? Somebody sent me this a couple years ago. thought I'd share it with you this morning. Speaking of a perfect world, here's what they said. In a perfect world, chocolate would have no calories. (laughs) Connie got blessed. (laughs) In a perfect world, procrastination would be honored as a virtue. In a perfect world, teenagers would rather clean their rooms than text. In a perfect world, men would go through labor. And in a perfect world, politicians would pay us taxes. But we don't live in a perfect world, do we? That means there are things that are going to come our way. There are circumstances that are going to threaten who we are, and we've got to find a way to deal with them. And on this list of discouragement, here's the most important thing you have to know. Discouragement is deadly. Satan was having a garage sale one day. And this man went wandering into Satan's garage sale, and he started looking around at things, and he picked this one thing up, and he goes, Hey, Satan, what's this? And Satan said, well, that's lying. Well, how much is this? Well, it's $100. Well, Satan, what's this? Well, that's sexual temptation. Well, how much is that? Well, that's $250. Well, Satan, what's this? Well, that's cheating on a test in school. How much is this? Well, it's $400. And the guy's looking all around. He goes, hey, Satan, what's this? And Satan said, well, that's discouragement. Well, how much is this? That's $100,000. I guess you gotta be kidding me. You got lying, cheating on a test, a few hundred bucks. Why is discouragement so expensive? And Satan said, because discouragement is my most effective weapon and I'm not letting it go for cheap. Around our church, we have an understanding and it's this. Discouragement is the anesthetic 
that Satan uses on a person's life right before he reaches in and carves out your heart. Somebody ought to tweet that. Discouragement is the anesthetic that Satan uses on a person's life right before he reaches in and carves out your heart. In 600 BC, the nation of Assyria invaded Israel. They conquered Israel. And they took all the survivors from Israel back down to Babylon where they enslaved them to serve the city of Babylon and the nation of Assyria. The Bible calls this period of captivity the 70 years of exile. And they for 70 years were there and they, all they did was yearn to get back to their homeland. They yearned for where they could go back to Jerusalem and continue to serve God. But they were enslaved there in the city. And it says that after this period of 70 years in exile, there was a new king who ascended to the throne there in Babylon by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible doesn't tell us why this happened. It only tells us that it did. But after serving there on the throne in, in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar calls in some of the Israeli leaders. He brings them into his office and he says, hey guys, you and your people have been here for 70 years. For 70 years, you've helped us pave our streets and build our infrastructure and, and raise our crops and you've been serving us so well. Thanks for coming. But you know what? I think it's time for you guys to go back home. And the Bible teaches us that for the next 92 years, the children of Israel were released from Assyrian and Babylonian captivity in a period of three movements to go back down to their homeland. Now the first movement was led by a man of the name of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel led these people out of Assyria, out of Babylon, back down to Jerusalem. And the Bible teaches us that he ruled there for a period of 79 years. And then the Bible teaches us that the second wave was led by a man named Ezra. And Ezra led the second movement of people out of Babylon back down to Jerusalem and that he ruled there for a period of 13 years. And then the Bible says that there was a third movement that went back down to Jerusalem. And it doesn't tell us who led this movement, but it does tell us who didn't go with them. See, there was one Israeli man who had risen to political and governing providence there in Assyria by the name of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah stayed behind because he felt he could honor God and serve God's purposes better by remaining there in Babylon than he could if he went back down to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's brothers and family and the rest of them all went down. And they'd been down there for just a little while. And they came back up to visit Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's all excited to see his brothers. He's giving them bro hugs and high fives and shoulder bumps and all that stuff. And he goes, man, guys, it's good to see you again. Man, I miss you. I love you. But you're looking good. Got a little sun on your face. You look a little bit rested. I'm glad that you came back. How's it going down there? How's Jerusalem? How are our people? How's the homeland? How's our homestead? How's the city? Nehemiah's brothers look at him, and they say, Nehemiah, our people are doing really well. They have rebuilt their homesteads, and they've reestablished their fields, and the harvest is good, and they're taking care of their livestock, and they're raising their families, and that's good. But Nehemiah, we've got a huge problem. Nehemiah, our people have been down there for 92 years, and no one has be rebuilt the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And we are afraid that our city and our people are subject to further attacks. The wall's in disrepair. The gates are still burned. Nobody's done anything. And the Bible says, in Nehemiah chapter 1, when Nehemiah heard these words, 
It says that he sat down and he wept and he mourned. And then he fasted and prayed. See, when Nehemiah got the bad news, Nehemiah was overcome with grief, with a certain sense of discouragement and circumstances, a certain concern for things. And he weeps and he mourns, but he doesn't stay locked in his discouragement. The Bible then teaches us that he gets up and he goes to the king and he asks the king for permission to go down there and see if he could help resolve this issue and for a letter of safe passage. And the Bible tells us that Nehemiah goes down into Jerusalem, he gathers the people, and they start working on rebuilding the city wall. I want to pick this story up in the scriptures in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at verse number 19. And we read these words. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, so you've got a Horonite and an Ammonite. They come together and they get all uptight, okay? And, and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked us and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Now let's pause right there. So here's Nehemiah feeling the call of God after a period of, of mourning and fasting and praying to go down and begin to make a difference and to serve God and, and to fix the city walls. And you've got some people sitting on the outskirts, pointing fingers, mocking, ridiculing, demeaning. You with me so far? One of the things that I know about the American version of Christianity and what happens daily in the American church is that when God's trying to do something fresh or when God's trying to de redeem something that once was, there are always going to be people who are going to sit on the sidelines and ridicule and mock and point fingers. Can I pastor you guys for like two minutes? Would you allow me to do that? For five years, you all have been served, led, and fed by an amazing pastor and his family. Would you agree? Amen. For five years, through the period of what had been the Grace the Church, the former Reeve Avenue and Lighthouse, and now you've come together for in the last two years, and you've been here, and your capital city church and God has done an amazing, amazing thing. And I understand how American church works, and sometime probably roughly in the next six months or so. God's going to anoint somebody else, and God's going to bring that somebody else here to consider, continue to serve you and love you and lead you, not to what was, but to what he wants ahead. Amen. But here's my pastoral advice to you. When that happens, can I please, please ask you not to act like the Horonite and Ammonite and some of you sitting on the fringes trying to decide if you're going to get in or get out or you're going to wait and see what happens and you're going to ridicule and point fingers. Amen. Whoever this man is, jump in with both feet and help him build this place like it has never been built before. Because I believe, I 
I believe that the best days of Capital City Church aren't the days that are behind it, but they're the days that are in front of it. One more small piece of advice, and then we'll move on. I also understand that in the American church, when your future pastor gets here, unfortunately, there's likely to be one or two Horonites or Ammonites that get all uptight around here and are going to post stupid stuff on social media and say things about that pastor, about this church, because that's not the way it was. And I'm asking the rest of you to look them in the eye and say, this church is going to bounce back. Jesus bounced back. Lazarus bounced back. Nehemiah bounced back. Joseph bounced back. Peter bounced back. And Capital City Church is going to bounce back. You have no favor in this place. Let's go on to verse 20, if we could, please. And Nehemiah answered them by saying, and here, here it is. This is the key to the whole conversation this morning. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. And there in your notes, I want you to follow along. Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will give us success. Here's what I want you to understand about the future and the hope that God wants to bring to this church. All hope begins by being God-focused. Now, just for the sake of conversation, I want to pretend that a few of you here, and maybe even a few of you who are watching online today, maybe you're not interested in being God-centered. If you're not interested in being God-centered, what are your options? Well, you could be self-centered. The only problem with being self-centered is when was the last time you met a self-centered person who was genuinely happy? They don't exist. Or you could be looks-centered. The only problem with being looks-centered is that looks-centered people are the most insecure people on the face of the planet. And yet, I understand that some people are going to spend a whole lot more time and money on their hair and makeup and Botox than you're ever going to spend with God. You could be self-centered. You could be look-centered. You could be failure-centered or problem-centered. By that, I mean you're always looking out for the failures and the difficulties and going to the garden and eat worms. And people who are failure and problem-centered, who, people who live with a victimized mentality, live lives of great discouragement fueled by great disillusionment. You could be other-centered. By that, I don't mean the good way. I mean you could spend your entire life worrying about what others are always thinking of you. The church that David alluded to that I was in a few years ago in California, we had a pretty good-sized youth group. And they, they, they kind of had this tradition that the graduating class would always come back to the last youth group of the summer, and a few of those graduating students would speak to the students who were still going on through high school before this group went on to college or their careers or whatever. We had this one young man who was pretty popular there in the youth group, and he said, you know, the only piece of advice I can give you is from my own experience. He said, I went through four years of high school worrying about what everybody else was thinking about me, only to get out of high school and realize nobody else was thinking about me. <laughs> Nehemiah said, live a life that is God-centered, because the God of heaven will give us success. Be God-centered. Then Nehemiah said, be faith-focused. See, everybody everywhere puts their faith in something. 
But if you're putting your faith in the American dollar, eventually you're going to have a letdown. And if you're putting your faith in the American government, But think about all the things we put our faith in. We put our faith in a politician. We put our faith in a business leader. We put our faith in the Ohio State Buckeyes and they play Oregon. We put our faith in, we put our faith in a pastor. We put our faith in a boss. Jesus, or Nehemiah says, no, be God-centered and through that become faith-focused on what he wants to do with you, to you, and through you. Because hope is God-centered, faith-focused. And then he says, it's what? It's servant-hearted. We, his servants, will arise and rebuild. You see, every once in a while, a church will go through a season in their history where they need some servant-hearted people to step up and carry the church for a little bit. And I don't know what the next few months look like for this church, but if it's necessary, there may be some God's call on some servant-hearted people, and a couple of you are going to stand up and say, you know what? I'll put this church on my back, and I'll carry its finances for a while. I'll put this church on my back. I'll carry the prayer burden for a while. I'll put this church on my back. I'll make sure that the ministries of the students and children happen for a while. I'll put this church on my back, and I'll carry the burdens of the people for a while. I'll put this church on my back, and I will serve it, and I will sacrifice no matter what, because I want to live a God-centered, faith-focused, servant-hearted life. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and rebuild. The final thing you have to know about hope is this. All hope is future-oriented. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. See, the problem with so many Christians and so many churches, in fact, people in general, is that we don't live future-oriented lives. We have a tendency to want to spend our lives driving in the rearview mirror. Try that today, by the way. When you leave this service, go out and get in your car and drive home only looking in the rearview mirror. Because that's how, far, that's how far too many people and too many churches live their lives. Folks, here's what you have to understand. Everybody has a past. And it doesn't matter if your past is a good past or a bad past. It's still the past. There are so many churches in the United States today that 30, 40, 50, 175 million years ago had a great history and they did great stuff. And they're still trying to live today by holding on to that. And you can't do that. God says, I want you to be future oriented. There comes a point in time when you've got to take one last look at your past. You've got to whip out your sword of faith. You've got to cut that chain and let it go because the question is not what's behind you, it's what's in front of you. And I think that Capital City Church has an amazing what's in front of you today. Anybody here ever heard of Walt Disney? Well, Walt Disney had a daughter by the name of Diane Disney. And Diane Disney wrote a book about what it means to grow up Disney. And she said, this was what it was like with life with my dad, except it wasn't like one of those typical L.A., Hollywood, tell-all books where they say, you know, this famous person, you know, they were abusive and an alcoholic. She said, are you kidding? She said, my dad, Walter Disney, was a great dad. She said, he took me to school almost every day that I was in school. 
Almost every evening, if he didn't pick me up, when I came home, he was there, and we would have dinner together, and he would help me do my homework, and we did life together. My dad was a great dad, and she says, as a matter of fact, he was such a great dad that I really didn't know who my dad really was until my first day of first grade. Diane Disney says in her book that on her first day of first grade, she walked into the classroom, and they all had assigned seats, and she found her seat. And she said, as was the custom in that day, the teacher went around and had each of them stand up and say their name. And when it came her time, Diane Disney stood up and she said, good morning, class. My name is Diane Disney. And the class went, ah, and they started cheering and screaming. Well, Diane Disney sat down and started to cry. And the teacher came by and she said, Diane, why are you crying? Why are all these kids making fun of me? Why, why don't they like me? Diane, they're not making fun of you. They, they're happy for you. How are they happy for me? They don't know me. She said, Diane, what is your name? My name is Diane Disney. Diane, what's your father's name? My father is Walter, Walter Disney. The teacher said, Diane, your dad is Walter Disney, as in Walt Disney, as in Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, happiest place on earth. The class went, ah! Diane Disney said she walked home that day. She walked in the front door, and there sitting in his easy chair, reading his paper like he was most evenings, was her father, Walter. Diane Disney said she walked up in front of her dad, stuck her little six-year-old hand on her six-year-old hip, took her six-year-old hand, ripped the paper out of her dad's lap, pointed her finger in his face and said, you never told me, you're Walt Disney. Diane Disney said, I walked around for the next three months, stunned, dazed, and amazed at who my father was. In Capital City, I think of some of you in this room this morning could look your father in the eye, recapture how much he loves you, how much he has for you, the hope that he wants to give to you. You could live the next six months, the next six years, the next 60 years, stay dazed, stunned and amazed at who your father is, how much he loves you, how much he has for you, how much he wants to help you, how much he wants to pour into you, how much he wants to grow you and work through your brokenness and your pain and your discouragement and your frustration and lead you to his preferred future. You can build this on your marriage. You can build this in your family. You can go through school with it. You can build this church on it. You can build your business on it. But God wants you to be stunned, dazed, and amazed at how good He is, how much He loves you. He is the good, good Father. And just maybe this morning, some of you need to refine that hope for your marriage, for your family, for your business, for this church, for your own soul. I invite you to come and pray. I've heard, I've heard a thousand stories of why they think you're but I've heard the tender whisper of love in 
the dead of night as you tell me that you're pleasing that I never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am Oh, I've seen many searching for answers Far and wide, but I know We're all searching for answers Only you provide, cause you know just what in all of your ways to 
perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. You believe it this morning. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's, it's who, who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. You're a good, good father. One more it's time. Let's tell He's a good, good father. It's who you are. Amen. It's who you are. And, and I'm loved. Look at someone and tell them you are loved today. You are loved by God. You can be seated. Oh, what a beautiful time today. Did you appreciate Dr. David Harris? Let's give him a hand. David, thank you. Thank you for God's word this morning. This was God's truth for us today. I'd like to have our ushers, if they will, to come forward. And while our ushers are coming, now let's just give a love offering today just because you love God. Say, well, I was going to do my time. Yeah, do that. Do a little more. Just, just do it. Let me tell you, I understand we were looking for 32 sponsors for the Awana program. Carolyn told me this week we have 52 already. Let's give God praise. Amen. This is good. It's good. I ask, I ask her, you know, I'm just starting here, just as your interim until the guy younger, faster, better looking comes. But, uh, you know, I, I ask him, I say, how's the offerings doing? And she just put her hands up and said, we're doing good. I said, as long as she's saying we're doing good, we're all happy. Amen. So let's give as unto the Lord. Father, bless this offering today. Bless those who have to give, those who don't. And Lord, I pray that you'll fill us with hope. In Jesus' name, amen. And while the offering is being taken, I'd like to ask uh, Judy Kroom if she would come forward. And I want to, uh, to just tell you that I've known Judy for a long time, known her family a long time. And one of the greatest, one of the greatest prayers of my life is that God would make of us a Great Commission Church. More than anything else in the world, I want us to become a Great Commission Church. And Judy is our missionary. Let's give her a hand. Amen. And I want to just talk to you a minute. Let me give you this and, and I'll ask you the question. I have been to Egypt 13 times, yes, and served the Lord there. And uh, when, when you're going back in Egypt, when? 
I will be returning to the mission field on October the 12th. I have a table out in the lobby if you want to stop by and see the different ministries that are happening in Egypt and the ones that I serve. I'd love to talk about what the Lord is doing and how He's using me there. Well, my ministry is of love and encouragement. It's a compassion ministry. Um, I like to say sometimes that the Lord told me to be like three peas in a pod. Be present, have um, passion, and proclamation. So I go and serve our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ because he tells us first to love those that are in our family. And we're all in the family of God. So I reach out to um, our brothers and sisters. I also serve the Sudanese refugees, which are four million in the country of Egypt. I also um, serve as um, church planting representation um, in Upper Egypt, in the Minya and Sedfa region. And I also do Muslim outreach. And I understand, you told me this week, I had a great time talking with her this week about her ministry. I, I didn't really fully understand it, that you are feeding 150 families. Is that right? Is that right? 150 families, not people, a month. And that's about $1,600 per quarter. And we're praying that God will help you to find 16 people who would love to share $100 with you to feed 150 families. You can see her, you can mark it on your offering thing. Judy, we love you, we thank you, and mention your prayer. I just want to mention one thing about the 5-2 food pantry that is in um, Zahara Village that we serve. That this, with this outreach, we have also been able to have open doors to minister to 80 Muslim families. And we have been able to share the gospel um, through our food pantry. Um, when In Egypt, when you go, you have to take something with you. You can't go with empty hands, is what they say. So with these food baskets, we are able to um, reach the Muslims in this particular village to share the gospel. So I ask you to continue to pray for um, these families as the pastor there ministers to them. But I also want to share very quickly, if you stop at my table, I have a prayer card. And if you want to take your first missionary journey, you can go with me in prayer. Because prayer is a vital part of what I do. And a lot of what you see on my prayer card you heard today, because that was my message. Faith, hope, love. God first loved us, and we are to love others. But it says on here that I can give without loving, but I can't love without giving. Because John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave, and he has called me to give. He has called us to sacrifice. And my ministry there is loving, giving hope, and being the hands and feet of Jesus. So stop by my table because I'd love to continue to share. God bless you. Thank you, Judy. And she has a friend with her today from Egypt, 
Afifa, would you stand? And she lives now in Columbus, but she's originally from Egypt. Let's give her a capital city welcome and tell you we are glad you are here. I want you to watch just a minute. It's a one minute video of what she does in Egypt. Then we'll complete the service. deepest prayer I have for this church is that we will reach around the world. We commissioned Pastor Phil and Crystal last week. Next week will be our first Sunday and as you walk out both Cheryl and my wife are going to give you one card. It's an invitation card. I don't want to give you a handful. Just one. Next week, every one of you bring somebody. Who are you going to find? We're going to have pumpkins. We're going to have all kinds of stuff to eat afterwards. It's first Sunday. We're going to preach to you about if God be for us, who can be against us. I don't want you to take ten. I want you to take one. And just commit by the grace of God. The last thing I want to do, Daniel, where are you? Daniel and Caitlin, I want you to come here. Last week, we commissioned Phil and we commissioned Crystal. And I have to tell you, for my wife and I, this one's tougher. I want you to know that. I traveled with these guys for nearly five years. I've known her since she was just a little tiny girl hiding behind sister and has become now such a marvelous young lady and young woman and if the truth is known don't tell pastor Phil and Crystal okay the reason I came to this church was not Phil and Crystal it was Daniel and Caitlin I mean that I love you buddy and they're going to go and I tell you what we're trying to find all these people to replace them 
Connie's got a card for them. But I want you to tell them this morning how much we love them. I want you to give them a hand so they'll never forget that they were loved by Capital City. Give them a standing ovation. Give them a standing ovation. to have some of the elders come up and I'd like for you to stand facing the corner. Just remain standing. We're going to be done. Some of the elders and the board members to come and we're going to pray for them. Because you see, our church is not so much about bringing people and keeping them here. Yes, come right on. It's about bringing people and equipping them. And sending them That's when God's pleased. That's when the church becomes the church. And Pastor Ed, I'd like for you, if you would, would you pray over me? Holy God, holy God, we just we just come before you with uh, gratitude in our heart, with uh, sadness uh, at the moment, but with uh, expectation and hope, because you are a mighty God because you are leading us guiding us into the very next right thing to do so we give you praise we thank you for Daniel and Caitlin for the work they've done here this past four years uh, with Lighthouse with uh, Grace with Capital City Church as we are becoming uh, your Great Commission Church we thank you for these two. We commission them to go forth and spread the gospel in their music, in their ministry, and everything they do, that you would cause it to prosper, that you would give them strength and hope and encouragement as they do the next right thing for your glory and honor. For it is in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray and expect great things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you go. Don't forget about the hayride next week, and they'll give you a card. Bring somebody with you next week. You are dismissed.